Bear Smith is a seventh generation family farmer from Michigan. For decades, her family has grown commodity corn, wheat, and soybeans. But in recent years, they've started growing, processing, and marketing ancient grains to supplement the commodity market volatility. Why we are shifting to these food grade grains is not only is the ancient grain market increasing, it's slated to hit $6.3 billion by 2026, but this really provides reliable, consistent, steady income for us that isn't as subject to crazy outside forces. But marketing their first ancient grain, TEF, was not as straightforward as Claire had hoped it would be. She ended up creating a new consumer packaged good, or CPG product, called Tefola. And her story is one that speaks to several current trends we're seeing in food and agriculture. Buyers have about three minutes to talk to you. And so being able to say right off the bat, we're sourcing ingredients from our seventh generation family farm where we're pivoting from corn and soy to alternative grains and seeds. That singular sentence probably bought me, you know, an extra seven minutes multiple times, right? And the more time you have to talk to a buyer, the better. Tefola's Claire Smith talks to guest co-host and farm to CPG expert Jennifer Barney on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to make sure I recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you're welcome to join. Visit CalgaryAgBusiness.com to learn more. That's CalgaryAgBusiness.com. Thank you so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, today's episode is all about ancient grains and building a CPG business on top of an established farm. These are two things that I personally know very little about. So lucky for you and for me, we have a guest co-host joining us on the show today, Jennifer Barney. Uh, several months ago, someone on LinkedIn shared a post called Ag Companies Launching Food Brands. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, you already know that is something that I'm very passionate about and fascinated by. So, of course, I immediately read the post and subscribed to the newsletter of the person who posted it. Well, it turns out that newsletter was called The Business of Food, and it was created by Jennifer Barney. After reading several of her newsletters, I reached out about collaborating, and here she is, co-hosting her first episode with me here today. So I'm going to introduce her and then let her provide some necessary context for this conversation you're about to hear between her and Claire Smith of Tefola. Jennifer is a consumer packaged goods or CPG expert. She lives in the Central Valley of California and got her start in the food industry 16 years ago when she founded the almond butter brand Barney Butter. 
Jennifer successfully grew the brand to nationwide retail distribution and sold the company. After exiting Barney Butter, Jennifer has since become an advisor and consultant to startups and ag leaders who want to get closer to the consumer with their own brands and innovations. Her newsletter, like I said, is called The Business of Food, where she shares food industry knowledge, including business modeling, growth tips, and what to focus on in the early stages of business. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Tim. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, let's maybe start talking about you before we dive into our featured guest here a little bit. Your background. So you started Barney Butter. What was sort of the impetus of that? How how did all that start? Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I was an early adopter of the natural foods movement. This was back in the 90s. Um, I had four little kids and my husband and I were living in the in the Bay Area. So, you know, at that time, we had access to Whole Foods markets and Trader Joe's. And, you know, I was kind of dabbling a little bit in making like, you know, my own applesauce from the apple tree in the backyard. Through uh, my husband's career in banking, we relocated to Fresno, California, which is in the Central Valley. And I was one of those people that had no idea that this was the breadbasket of the world. And uh, living in Fresno was like one degree of separation to an almond farmer. And at the time, um, you know, I knew about the health benefits of almonds. I was also very sensitive to the fact that, you know, peanuts can be an allergen for, you know, children, not that we had any peanut allergic children. But I just thought, you know, gosh, why isn't there a better almond butter out there? There there really should be something that is more palatable for the family. So, yeah, so I just started making my own. I had, you know, friends of mine that were almond farmers. And, you know, I learned all kinds of things about different varieties of almonds. And the next thing you know, I stumbled into this world of consumer packaged goods, which I had no background in. And, yeah, created a brand. I scaled the brand to national distribution um, and then I sold my company. So, you know, I'm completely out of Barney Butter. Um, it's still a product on the shelf. I'm very proud of, you know, the progress that the brand has made over the years and been a joy to other people who, you know, want a very smooth and stable almond butter that's more akin to like a peanut butter. And yeah, so, you know, I am so pleased to be on your, I'm such a huge, huge fan of Future of Agriculture. And uh, I, I'm just so happy to be here. Well, no, I'm happy to have you here because I am a fan of, of the business of food, which is your newsletter. And for those listening, you can go get signed up for that at uh, jenniferbarney.substack.com. Of course, that will be in the show notes. Make sure you sign up because it is you do a great job of you are somehow very detailed, but very succinct. And I really enjoy, you know, just your approach to uh, writing the newsletter, but also just your vantage point on, on the industry in general. And I, I think some of my favorite episodes that I've done on this podcast have been farmers that are taking the next step um, kind of out of commoditization into value-added products. But it's not as easy as just like, oh, now I'm going to add a bunch of value and make a bunch more money, right? There's a ton of challenges to achieving the dream that that you did with Barney Butter. And we, ha I mean, we have a great example of somebody kind of doing all this here uh, on the show today. And I'm really excited to kind of start this collaboration with you with today's episode. Can you maybe introduce us to who the audience is going to hear from today and then a little bit about uh, why you thought it'd be kind of a fun episode to put together? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm super excited. I got to talk to Claire Smith, who is the founder of the ancient grain granola brand Tefola. And Claire comes from a seventh generation farming family in Michigan. Her family farm is called Tanera Farms. They've been farming wheat, corn, and soy since 1837. And just a few years ago, in 2015, Tanera Farms started planting teff. 
And that is a tiny, tiny grain. It's rich in protein and fiber. And it's a key ingredient in this Ethiopian bread called Inhera. And so why the farm began growing this obscure grain and how they became processors, what led Claire to start making and marketing granola is the subject of this interview. Yeah, there really is just so much here. I mean, between the ancient grains and every step it takes to go from commodity markets to an actually value-added processing and marketing of consumer packaged goods. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff here, but what is it that you hope, uh, Jennifer, that people get from today's episode? So, you know, Tim, what to listen for in this interview is that changing the food system is really a grassroots effort. Getting to scale in this business is going to happen through consumer awareness and consumer demand. Tanera Farms' dream is to help bring stability and longevity to other farmers. So, you know, their ideal is that they would be able to offer a price to a neighbor farm and be able to guarantee that price before ever putting seeds in the ground. And that's incredibly important, right, to have a buyer. Um, so they're not quite there yet, but that's what they're working on. And that's where the brand Tefola plays a key role in growing that awareness. Now, maybe this is only for me, but I thought I'll just provide a definition of ancient grains for anyone who may not know exactly what that term is referring to, because I didn't know the exact definition. Uh, so I'm looking to the trusted source of wikipedia.org. So take it with a grain of salt. But what it says is that ancient grains is a marketing term used to describe a category of grains and pseudo cereals that are purported to have been minimally changed by selective breeding over recent millennia, as opposed to more widespread cereals such as corn, rice, and modern varieties of wheat. Ancient grains include varieties of wheat, spelt, coarsen wheat, einkorn, and emmer, and the grains of millet, barley, teff, oats, and sorghum, as well as the pseudo cereals of quinoa, amaranth, buckwheat, and chia. We obviously had a great quinoa episode, which I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I'll make sure I link that in the show notes. And this one kind of reminds me of that similar, trying to bring an ancient grain to commercialization and the challenges that go along with it. Super great episode. Here it is. I'm going to drop into the conversation where Claire is sharing a little bit more about the background behind this Tef operation and her family farm. I'm the seventh generation. So my ancestors moved to where our farm is now in 1837. And since then, we've been doing corn, wheat, and soybeans, and pretty much predominantly that until more recently, when my dad was talking to a friend of his who works in agriculture in Eastern Africa. He was hearing about the gripes and the woes of cash crop pricing and all of you know the rising input costs and the falling prices. And this friend of ours recommended that we try growing teff, T-E-F-F. It's native to Ethiopia. They use it every day in their bread called injera. But we tried growing 33 acres of it in 2015. That was our first year of growing it. And it was truly beginner's luck. It came up perfectly. And it was the most beautiful crop, uh, even though we barely knew what we were doing. <laughs> but we taught ourselves how to grow it and harvest it, which is a massive challenge with the world's tiniest grain. It's tiny, it's smaller than amaranth. And so it was difficult to figure out how to harvest it. And since then we have grown leaps and bounds. We have built our own facility so that we can clean it on site. So that vertical integration, which I know we're gonna talk more about um, has been a big part of our story. And it wasn't 
actually our goal in the beginning to be doing that. We just wanted to be a supplier, but based on what was available in the market, we were kind of forced to go into that direction. So I think that answers or at least starts the conversation. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much there. Oh my gosh. So let's start with, you said seventh generation, you said 1837. Is that right? That is a long time as a farmer. And, um, I just want to understand. So you're in Michigan and, you know, I'm from California. It's really different out here. So tell me a little bit about like traditional Midwest farming, you know, for how long did your family farm traditional crops like corn and soy or what we would call, you know, cash crops. And I think you've mentioned in the past that that can be a very volatile market. So tell me a little bit about what's volatile about farming those crops and why diversification in your portfolio. So corn and soybeans and wheat um, have been our primary crops that our family has grown. And of course, over the years, you know, my great, great grandfather, whoever might have tried something different, you know, one or two years, but that's been the primary revenue source for the farm is corn and soybeans. And so why these crops are so volatile is because the pricing changes every single day. So we sell into the market. And this is, I guess, more about farming than I think most people understand. But in the Midwest, you have either contracts with buyers or, you know, you can sell into the free market. And so that means before the growing season even begins, before seeds are in the ground, you are signing contracts with buyers that lock you into a certain price per bushel. And so you would think, okay, just contract out everything. But then you're locked into that price. If, you know, for some reason there was massive tornadoes in Iowa, Illinois, and Nebraska, and the corn crop got wiped out in those places, the value of our corn suddenly spikes. So you want to have some of your crop in the free market so you can take advantage of those prices. But you also want to make sure that, you know, if you have a really bad year or if there's a surplus of corn, you still have those contracts that you can rely on that revenue. So that is a little bit of the volatility of it, right? So it spikes and falls and all these prices are all over the place based on, you know, foreign policy. You know, are we, how are tariffs with China right now? Like how is the supply chain impacting corn and soybean prices? And so it's really up and down. We don't have any control or any say, right? So we sell into grain elevators and we have no idea where it's going. And to be clear, this isn't food grade. This is livestock feed. So this isn't even headed to people. This is headed to livestock. So that's the volatility of it. And why we are shifting to these food grade grains is not only is the ancient grain market increasing, it's slated to hit $6.3 billion by 2026. But what is really interesting is that it's more of a steady income and it may not be the biggest part of our revenue stream, but it's going to be more steady. So the facility that we're building, the grains that we're growing, this really provides reliable, consistent, again, steady income for us that isn't as subject to crazy outside forces. So we're more able to control it because these are grains and seeds that aren't you know, widespread all over the market. It's more a smaller niche market. So we're able to control the prices 
And especially even more so when we own the processing and the cleaning behind the scenes. So we represent the farmers and the processors. And I know we're going to talk about this later, but we're also the food manufacturers. So we just have a lot more of the supply chain, which, you know, more control means better margins and it's just better. Thank you for clarifying. Um, So you were selling a a non-food grade animal feed and then decided to go into human grade, food grade. And uh, this is a lot of changes. And then ancient grains, which as you mentioned, yes, definitely it is a growing market. What with, you know, people avoiding gluten or carbs, either for lifestyle purposes or, you know, medical reasons and just the increased awareness about proteins in certain kinds of grains that aren't existent or that are less present in traditional wheat. So for all of those reasons, I can see like the desire to want to do it. So let's just take it from there. You talk about, you know, being the grower, you talk about being the processor and now also the maker, you know, finished good product maker. That is like a literally farm to fork operation. And you've recently invested in a hauler and sorter. So kind of starting back from, okay, instead of just selling into a a grain elevator, you don't even know where it's going. Now you are maintaining possession of your crop. You're bringing it in from the fields. And then what happens next? It kind of walk us through, did you initially set out to be a processor or how did that decision come about? So the first couple of years, I would say two to three years of growing Teff, that was our first crop for five years. That was the only alternative grain that we were growing for about five years. So when we initially planted it, the thought was end of the chain. We want this to end up with Ethiopian restaurants and they are making injera, which is their bread. And we don't want any part of any of that process. We just want to grow the grain and then sell it. And so we started figuring out how to clean it. And so finding someone who knows how to clean the world's tiniest grain when Teff is already a pretty obscure in the West, um, or at least in the States, Teff is very obscure. And so, especially in 2015, people really didn't know what it was. And that has definitely changed in recent years. So we were looking for a good cleaner. And when we couldn't really find someone that was pretty close to us, because you're losing your entire margin, if you're shipping a truckload of Teff out to California, for us in Michigan, that's way too far. It's so far to ship product. And so we found equipment that we thought we could clean the Teff with. And so we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And then over time, we realized, oh, actually, we're better at cleaning than the person we had hired before. Like we can do this better and we can get to a higher purity ourselves. And so that just means, you know, we keep more of the margin, right? So then as my granola company was starting to grow, I use buckwheat. And so I proposed, convinced, begged, whatever (laughs) verb you want to use. I asked my dad to grow buckwheat for us as well. And so in a couple of years ago, we've now grown buckwheat on the farm. And then as we were seeing more and more interest in ancient grains and also seeing how difficult it was finding processors, that's when we decided to go all in on building a facility, a gluten-free facility, because that was another key part for us was that there was no gluten-free processing facility that could handle 
our grains because they're so specialized. And so we finished construction and finished putting equipment into the facility that was built on site end of 2021. And so in there, we have, you know, anywhere from four to six pieces of equipment that we're using for each grain to take it from off the field, dirty, full of dirt, stones, bits of everything in there to a final product in 50 pound bags that the next step of the chain can actually use. And if I knew how challenging that was going to be, I feel like we would have started out with that because it was, it's so hard to do. And so few people can do it with these specialized grains. So that's where we are now. Oh, I love that story. And yes, hindsight is twenty twenty. We get into things out of ignorance. We come out the other end going, if I had only known, right? But yeah, no, I can certainly relate to, you know, not being a farmer myself, but just relate to like, wanting a certain claim for my finished good, not finding it. So in your case, gluten-free, in my case, peanut-free, and therefore kind of backing into creating a manufacturing facility just to satisfy what, you know, we really feel is our brand promise, right? So I love that story. So I, you know, I ordered your product. I got a wonderful infograph with my order that tells about the regional grain chain. And I love this because it's very easy to read. And in between kind of the third step and the fourth step, you have the part about preparing the grains where you talk about cleaning, drying, hulling, milling. And then the next step is making food. Okay, well, there's like a big step in between there, right, that has to do with supply chain. So how would a food maker get access to a specialty grain, particularly TEF, which, you know, you may be the only that I know of, but probably one of very few if there are others in the U.S. that are growing and processing TEF. And I see down here that you are a member of the Artisan Grain Collaborative. So can you talk a little bit about that and just how grains are typically sourced by manufacturers? That's such a good point that I think you bring up is that discovery piece of you have people on one side of the chain, the food manufacturers, the brands, the consumers who are like, I stumbled across this ingredient in my, you know, natural whole foods section of my grocery store. And now I want it at scale. And that discovery is challenging because when you go on the internet, and this is where I was, I was looking for buckwheat groats and I had to go to my ingredient supplier who, you know, is a small one man operation out of Detroit and saying, Hey, do you have buckwheat groats? Like where do they come from? How do I get them? Are they gluten-free? And that discovery is hard when you have the values that you're talking about of, we want locally sourced, locally processed grains. And so what happened with us is that we found the ingredient supplier for buckwheat groats and millet. But a lot of times if we needed gluten-free certification, we had to go out of the country. And so until very recently, our buckwheat groats were coming from China. And that was devastating to me because here we are on farmland where it's very easy for us to grow buckwheat in our backyard, but we had to get it to a place where I could actually use it. And so for four years, I've been sourcing buckwheat from essentially China when that money could stay not only in the States domestic wise, but in our state, there's huge advantages to that, both to the consumer because of the better price, but also for our local economy. It's just better to keep money close to home as much as you can. 
So in terms of the Artisan Grain Collaborative, they have been a fantastic grain advocate for connecting the people along the chain to each other. And so they're connecting the farmers to, you know, buyers. So, you know, if I, as a food brand, was looking for spelt or for sorghum, I could call up the farmers and say, you have practices that I believe in. You're doing regenerative agriculture. That's important to me. Where can I buy your stuff? And then they say, you know what? Janie's mill down in Maskram, Illinois is milling spelt. Why don't you head down there and ask her? And then we can do that traceability and we can make sure that you get the lot that you want with the right specs that you want. So what's great about the AGC is that they aren't the only grain focused groups in the States, but for us, it's very regional. And that communication, that cross collaboration is so important for both our economics, but also to the consumer who has been looking for more transparency on where the grain that they're eating is coming from. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I think the heightened awareness with COVID and everything that you talked about earlier about, you know, the volatility of crops in general, I think the end consumer has, you know, we've felt it just going to the grocery store and seeing empty shelves. And then when you kind of think about it from these large commodity standpoints, I think what nobody ever thought about as a consumer, they're now aware of because of COVID. And then bringing that into kind of this, this ancient grain specialty crop context I think local and regional has taken on a whole new desire and a whole new meaning, whereas maybe before it had more to do with your ethos as a consumer or maybe food safety as a consumer. Now it really is a matter of economics and a matter of, you know, um, almost national security for some folks. So I love what you're doing and just, yeah, the awareness out there. I mean, I don't know how many people can just like call you up and be like, sure, I'll take a 50 pound, you know, sack um, and store it in my basement. I mean, you know, so. There's the end consumer and then there's the kind of food maker who maybe is like you were several years ago, only, you know, they're not directly involved with their raw inputs and they're just seeking like, first they want a sample and then maybe they want to buy in a small quantity, but then they scale. So thinking about the scalability for your operation to become like a serious ingredient supplier to maybe a mid-sized, I don't know, maybe this is a dream of yours or certainly with your own brand, you know, scaling your brand, you know, what's the path to kind of being small and local and then becoming more of a, a national supplier for the ingredient? Great question. Uh, great question. Where we are right now, Tefola is not a massive brand. So the farm is very easily able to supply us for our grains. And just to give some context there, um, an acre of Tef can yield around 1,300 pounds of grain, and that's clean grain. And we are, you know, maybe going through a couple of pallets, which is 2,000 pounds a year of this grain. And so Again, for context, our first year growing TAF, we grew 33 acres. And so what's great about grain and less great compared to vegetables or that kind of thing is an acre can yield a lot of product. And so that coupled with the fact that our dream for the farm and the facility is to be able to purchase from other farmers after teaching them how to grow these specialty crops. And so not only then are we improving the stability and longevity of our farm, but we're able to teach other farmers in the area who are being, 
you know, walloped by this cash crop market and give them some more stability as well. And so when Tavola takes off and we have multiple product lines and we're going through truckloads of grain, you know, every couple of months, then we're able to reach out to, you know, our neighbors up the street who have been growing corn, wheat and soybeans and alfalfa and say, this is what we can pay for buckwheat. And, you know, you have a guaranteed buyer before you put seeds in the ground which is incredibly important as a farmer to have a buyer. And then we can give them that assurance that we'll take whatever you grow. And we didn't have that kind of assurance when we started. We were just putting seeds into the ground and, you know, a wing and a prayer that it would work out. And extremely lucky that it has worked out. We are extremely lucky. And in some ways, like it's a fluke, but it's not a fluke. Like we were able to put seeds in the ground without a buyer and it has worked out. So that's what we want to be able to offer for other farmers so that we can address the scalability of this and again, make it more profitable. And yeah, that's stability for the farm. Awesome. Yeah. Great answer. So I'd love to transition now to talk a little bit about Tavola and the inspiration for starting it. This was before you were growing Teff yourself. Is that correct? No, it started with the Teff. So we we're growing TEF and I came on as a kind of salesperson to get the TEF flour because we found a miller who could mill the TEF into flour. And my job was to sell the TEF flour and we were packaging it in two and five pound bags and we had gotten onto Amazon, which I thought meant we had made it. (laughs) And for anybody who owns a food product or has gotten onto Amazon, you know how funny that is. So we were growing on Amazon, but not nearly at the pace that I thought we could get. And we were trying to sell to Ethiopian restaurants, not understanding that they already had a source. And then we were trying to sell to foodies or health food people, but we failed in educating them of how to use Teff and here's what you can do with Teff flour. And so there were markers that, again, looking back, I mean, it was all, it all led to where I am now. So it was all important that it happened, but wow, that was a long time of, you know, being on Amazon. So when I realized that we would never really take off on the Teff flower market, I went into the kitchen with the whole grain Teff because that's all I had on hand and started playing around with recipes thinking, well, if I can just make something for people using this grain that is so good for you and, you know, tastes really nutty and yummy and it's something different because at that time people were looking for really different things, then maybe I can convince more people that this is something they should be adding to their diet. So I was playing around with muffin mixes, you know, bread recipes. I accidentally made alcoholic energy bites, which is a different story. (laughs) That was a mistake. But then one day I was making granola and I was only pulling ingredients from my pantry. And I had recently really gotten into, you know, whole foods, plant-based foods. And so my pantry was stocked with all these sorts of things. And I was just shoving things in a bowl, added quarter cup of teff. And the flavor was unlike anything I had tried before because it was complex. And that's what I always come back to when I'm talking about teffola and flavor and what makes it different is we have many ingredients. We have 13 ingredients and they are all there to add flavor and nutrition. We don't cut any corners just because we don't want, you know, an extra ingredient to pay for These are all ingredients that are adding flavor. And so the teff adds 
a subtle nuttiness that can be elevated by the almonds and the walnuts. And then the buckwheat is there for texture and bulk because I hate oat-based granola. It's so bloody boring. Um, Excuse my French, but it's very boring. So we wanted layers of flavor from grains and grains can deliver that unlike other more expensive ingredients like nuts or that kind of thing. Oh, I love it. I can attest to exactly what you're saying about the complexity of texture and how important that is. So I'm a make it at home granola person myself. I about once every three or four weeks, I make these huge, huge batches of granola in my kitchen. I don't have access to tough and buckwheat. So like I'm, I'm relegated to what I can find at the grocery store, but yes, I appreciate very much that there are different levels of texture, different levels of crunchiness. And that just adds so much to the eating experience. And you're right that people are looking for something different. And I think when you look in the granola, when you look in the cereal section, which the granola is a subcategory of cereal section, it's just a lot of the same stuff, which is mostly oat-based. It's because, let's face it, to make a really nice granola that is super healthy, it's expensive. To the end consumer, by the time you go through the distributor margin, what it takes to market the product, package the product. As you know, everything that you've learned from entering into this wonderful world of CPG, by the time it lands on the shelf, the per ounce cost is quite expensive because it is a nutritionally dense product with high quality ingredients if it's going to really meet that consumer demand. So when you're presenting to buyers, okay, you're very atypical in the sense that the core of your ingredients is grown by your family. So when you talk to buyers, how important is that story and what is their reaction? So a lot of times buyers have about three minutes to talk to you. And so being able to say right off the bat, we're sourcing ingredients from our seventh generation family farm where we're pivoting from corn and soy to alternative grains and seeds. That singular sentence probably bought me, you know, an extra seven minutes multiple times. Right. And the more time you have to talk to a buyer, the better to get their attention. So what they love about it is that no other granola brand can say that. No one else is sourcing directly from their family farm. Um, And then you add on the element of we're using unusual ingredients like teff and buckwheat groats and millet. And they pause and they think about it. And I think buyers are always thinking about what their consumers want. And as more consumers are looking for healthier alternatives to wheat that are gluten-free, as more consumers are looking for transparency and aligning their values with the food they're eating, that becomes an easier yes for the buyer. It becomes an easier yes to give us a chance and give us three facings on a shelf. And so it's been incredibly important for us for that farm piece. And obviously it's, you know, at the crux of who we are as a company, but without that, it would be much harder. It would be much harder. And I mean, I would figure it out, but I'm lucky that I don't have to. It's just, it buys us more time as an emerging brand with the buyer that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so now it becomes a game of how do you talk to the right buyers? How do you know that you're in conversations with the right buyers at the right grocery stores? You know, we're not necessarily a dollar general brand, which is understandable. That's fine. Other brands are, but that's that's not where we need to be pursuing. We need to be, you know, looking at the whole foods of the world or Mariano's or the fresh market sprouts, those kinds of retailers. And so Once you have, you know, your brand foundations and your 
your fundamentals of who you're trying to talk to, it becomes a lot easier to go out and tell your story to the right people. Yeah, for sure. I think you just really hit on an important point, which is really understanding what your channel strategy is on the outset. And it's not a matter of just pitching it out to anybody who will say yes. It's a matter of being very intentional as to where is your consumer that is going to be your brand champion, if you will, especially when you're first starting. Where is that consumer going to find you? Is it more in the independent stores? Is it more in the natural stores? Is it more in the specialty stores? And then really going after you know the retailers that are core in that channel and also geographically. So can you just leave us off with like, where can consumers find Tefola? What grocery stores are you distributed in? And then any other like e-commerce marketplaces can your products be purchased? So we are mostly distributed, and this is the the founder way of saying this, like our retail footprint is primarily in the Midwest region. (laughs) But for people who aren't in CPG land, we are mostly in grocery stores in the Chicagoland area and the Midwest. So Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. Anyone can buy on our website, eattefola.com. But we have some pretty exciting news that you actually haven't heard yet, Jennifer, which I'm thrilled by. Um, We will be doing a soft launch with Good Morning America in July, which is so exciting. (laughs) I am very nervous personally to like see how this goes, but I know it's going to go super well because I will over-prepare. That's just going to be what happens. But in July, you'll be able to find us on the Good Morning America website, which is going to be really, really fun. So eattefola.com. We are not on Amazon yet. We are just on our website, but anywhere else, we have a store located on the website as well. So you can check it out there. Ah, uh-huh, that's such great news. Good morning, America is going to be fabulous for you. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And gosh, keep us in the loop. We'll have to circle back with you in a year's time and hear about your progress. Man, Jennifer, that was a fantastic interview. I love stories like this of a farmer finding a new market and then kind of building a new supply chain from scratch in a lot of ways. So really, really enjoyed that. One thing that you know stood out to me that I've been thinking a lot about is the whole industry is talking about regenerative agriculture. And it just seems to me that if these regenerative practices are really going to get incorporated and stick around, and if we can do it while trying to reduce our dependence on herbicides and pesticides, it's going to take crop diversification. It can't just be, you know, add a cover crop here, reduce uh, reduce tillage there. I think it's going to have to be a new system that includes a variety of crops. And so it's exciting to see new crops like this take hold in a place like Michigan. And I, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what, what do you hope listeners take away from uh, today's episode? Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. And, you know, I sit on the consumer brand side of things, right? So I'm always drawn to what is trending and what do consumers want. And, you know, the trend being right now, not only traceability, but also want, you know, consumers wanting better nutrition from sustainable sources. And of course, as you mentioned, that puts monoculture in the hot seat. There's a lot of of talk about regenerative. You know, the mainstream consumer does not understand what regenerative is, but consumers are reading, hey, there's this global grain shortage. And at the same time, those of us that are in agriculture or connected to agriculture know that growers are being incented towards these regenerative practices. 
So what's so great about what Claire is doing is they're pivoting towards not just like, oh, we're going to respond to regenerative and cover crop. They're actually making these ancient grains as a cash crop and responding to that consumer demand for the better nutrition and the sustainability. Love it. Now, this is such a great interview, and I I know uh, listeners are going to demand more. So hopefully we can do more of these in the future and really appreciate you uh, bringing this interview to the audience today. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Well, I really would love to hear your feedback on today's episode, specifically because Jennifer and I have kicked around some other ideas about uh, some other sort of like farmers finding new ways to value add and even getting into consumer packaged goods and maybe doing some more guest hosting or perhaps even a standalone series of a podcast. So your feedback on this would really be appreciated, good or bad, constructive or otherwise. What'd you think of this? Are these the type of stories that you'd like to hear more of? Would it be beneficial here on this podcast or as its own standalone entity of some kind. Jennifer and I would both love your feedback. You can reach me, tim at aggrad.com. You can reach Jennifer by signing up for her newsletter, jenniferbarney.substack.com. Really would love your feedback on this, but thank you so much for listening. Your time and your attention, I value greatly, and I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. (music) 